A story they're writing today A wall that they're climbing You can carry the past on your shoulders You can start over Welcome to the broadcast of Calvary Chapel, Jacksonville Where the pastor is Pastor Ricky Rueda Grab your Bibles and read along Now here's Pastor Ricky If you are new here, my name is Ricky, I'm the pastor here, and we are going to be picking back up in Matthew chapter 14 as we finished Matthew 13 last week. We are in Matthew chapter 14. Now, we are going to break this one down a little bit different than we typically would, but first we're going to read through the whole text, but I do want to give you guys one preface before we do. It's the first Sunday of the month, and as always, we take communion together, and the Lord challenged me this morning to, instead of hitting you guys with the question two minutes before we take communion, something to consider before we get into the word today is that when we look in 1 Corinthians, we see Paul give a a warning to the believers, and we even see in Scripture a warning to unbelievers not to take communion, but for us, as we prepare to take communion, to make sure that we come to the table or we take communion in a worthy manner. And so as we get into the word today, I would encourage you to pray and consider what the Lord is encouraging you to speak or what he is speaking to you about so that maybe by the end of service in our time of reflection, in our time of prayer, we would be able to take communion together in a worthy manner that we're not bringing sin to the table, that we're not bringing unforgiveness to the table, but we would actually take a moment to reflect and see what it is that we might be withholding from the Lord before we celebrate in communion together, amen? So please keep that in the back of your mind and consider, Lord, what is it that you would have for me today so I could celebrate together in this communion full of joy? Now with that, if you guys would, if you're in Matthew chapter 14, verse one, would you stand with me as we read this section of scripture? If you're there, would you say amen? It says, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he might, <clears throat> so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. And now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. You guys may be seated. Let's pray before we dive in. So Lord, we come before you this morning, God, with a lot of announcements, a lot of things coming up, Lord, as you continue to build this body, believers up and together, that you would continue to refine our faith, 
But Lord, now we pray that you would fix our gaze on your word, that you would hold our attention on the things that you would speak to us so that, Lord, God, we could learn to apply these truths so that, Lord, we could learn to pray more honestly to ensure that we're not reflecting the character of those opposed to you, but, Father, we would reflect the character of Christ. So, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us this morning, Father. Lend us the Holy Spirit. We ask this in your name. Amen. Okay. So, <clears throat> we have been working our way for some time through the book of Matthew, and we closed up 13 as we worked through all of the parables last week. Now, we move from the parables into chapter 14, and this isn't a linear in terms of time change of chapter. There's a little bit of time bouncing here. And so, rather than going, I know I normally give you guys a one, two, three breakdown in terms of the text. We're going to break it down in terms of what's happening because in these, in these 13 chapters, you have a you have an explanation of, or sorry, you have a description of what's happening, and then it goes back in time to give you an explanation as to why Herod is thinking the way that he does. And then you have Jesus' response to it. And so the time bounces a little bit, and I want to make sure that we understand what's really going on. But before we do that, what we have seen through the book of Matthew is that Jesus is come to do the will of the Father, we see that he's speaking specifically, or the book of Matthew is catered to the Jewish people, but what we saw, especially in 13, is Jesus is speaking and bringing light to the kingdom of heaven. Now, when we speak of the kingdom of heaven scripturally, this is inclusive of Jesus' lordship and his ability to save, and it's also inclusive of the plan of salvation, and so Jesus has bring, been bringing light to these things and bringing explanation and understanding to these things. But then we also see throughout the book of Matthew, and especially today, and I say especially, but we're going to continue to see it, we see people's response to the kingdom of heaven. We see responses to the literal words of Jesus. We see responses to the actions of him and the actions of his disciples and those who are following him. And as we read through Matthew, it's important for us to note all of the responses because in our pride, what we like to do is try to relate ourselves to the good responses, not so much to the poor ones. But if we're honest with ourselves, in our flesh, what we often do is actually respond in an ill manner rather than a positive one. And so as we go through this, we want to ensure that we're taking note of them all so that if there's anything within us that is like the world, we could pray and ask the Lord to purge us of it. Amen? And so with that, the responses we see in these first 13 verses is we see these first two would be Herod and his family first running from the truth. Then we see an attempt to shut up righteousness. And then we see Jesus and the disciples take time to rest in the Father. Now, in those three responses, we find them within this order of events. Now, remember, 1 through 13a, this is not chronological, but I'm laying out the chronological order of it now is John the Baptist is arrested and beheaded. The disciples are sent to perform miracles. 
we see that Herod is perplexed because of the news he's receiving, specifically because he thought he killed the man who could do those miracles. And then we see Jesus hear the news of the death or the arrest and the death of John, and then they retreat to a place. And so there might be a little room for argument within that, but this is generally the order of events that are happening here. And so now, first, we're going to look at John the Baptist arrested and jailed with the first point, running from the truth. And so that is specifically Matthew 14, 3 through 5. And we'll read that one more time just to get us back on the same page. It says, For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they believed him to be a prophet. Now, as we take this in, we're going to actually take into consideration a few of the other gospel accounts as they give us a more well-rounded picture. And so before we move on, if you guys could flip over, but save your spot in Matthew, flip over to Mark chapter 6. We're going to look at verse 17. You guys can go ahead and I'll put a bookmark in Mark because we'll be back here. If you're in Mark chapter 6, verse 17, would you say amen? Says, for it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not, for Herod feared John knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. So here we have a focus on John the Baptist, but more specifically Herod and his family, and we're speaking about Herod Antipas. At this time, what's going on, so we understand what John is specifically speaking to this family about, is Herod has taken his brother's wife in some form of marriage. Now, what had gone on here is that Herod was already previously married, and so was Herodias, obviously, to um, his brother. And they had formed a scheme to divorce their spouses so that they could have one another. Now, John, being the prophet and the righteous man that he is, at the opportunity to speak to Herod about this, he would let him know that this is an unlawful union. Now, before we break that down, something that's interesting to note is that this Herod, Herod Antipas, while it might be easy to assume that, well, he's not Jewish, so do those laws apply to him? What's interesting about he and his family is those who raised him actually converted to Judaism while they were raised. And so this Herod has actually been raised and would know the word of God at least a little, but he probably knows it fairly well. And so as John is speaking to this thing, we can sit here and we can parse out details all day as to which law is it that John is speaking to? Is he speaking to the societal law that existed at the time, or is he speaking of the Mosaic law? And while we can argue all of those things, we do have Herod who is familiar with all of them. But what's more important and what we can absolutely settle on is that John is reminding Herod of the fact that 
This is sinful no matter how you slice it. Now, we need to remember something when it comes to this particular issue because when it comes to our relationships, both in friendship and even in marriage, I think there will, I hope there never comes a day that I'm not surprised at the things that I would hear, but even in marriage, it's amazing what people try to contrive or the kind of support people try to find to justify their actions and how they would treat one another. Societal acceptance and law are not greater than God's commands. And so, brothers and sisters, what I would remind you is that should you be in a tumultuous relationship, our first inclination should be to seek the word and the peace of God rather than the acceptance of the world. Because I can guarantee you that no matter what your stance is, if you run to the world, you will find somebody who's going to approve of whatever behavior or plan it is that you have contrived in your own mind. Now, I will preface this. If you are in a troubled relationship, the word of God never allows for any form of abuse. So let's start there. The church shouldn't be permitting of it and nobody else should. But what we're seeking is not only the counsel of God, but the character of God for our relationships. And for those of you who would go to the church or your church leadership is even there, should your counsel rail against the character of God in your staying even in a relationship is that I would caution you to adhere to that counsel because God will never encourage his leadership to lead somebody in a way that is counter to his character. Does that make sense? The reason I say that is that not all, I wish, but not all church counsel is always wise. We can read about these things in the news all the time, but when we come together and seek his truth in the word, we can find God's character to be very clear and simple. Now, While there may have been, again, these societal laws in place that would allow for this, John is reminding Herod again of what is really true. We see that his pride and sinful desire has allowed him to plot to take something or someone that isn't his. And so again, we can parse out laws all day, but what is, what is Herod really doing? Well, when you look at the Ten Commandments here, we see within them, Exodus 20, 14 through 15 and 17, he says, you shall not commit adultery. Well, as God does not desire divorce, at least, and he doesn't even permit it within this context, these two are in fact committing adultery. You shall not steal. Herod set a plan to take something that wasn't his. You shall not cover, covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And Scripture tells us that he clearly did those things that would lead him to a plan to steal her. So Herod, while we can speak about law, clearly has an issue of the heart. And at hearing this, Herod's first noted response to the working of the kingdom of God is to run from it. This schemer decides to abuse his authority because he and his household have come to despise the sound of truth. And this is a response that we should note. 
And I would say that we shouldn't note it so that we can prepare to counsel others, but so that we would be able to evaluate our response to holiness. Now, there's many of us here in this room who would say, well, I've never been in this situation, and I hope to God I would never be in such a sinful place that I would be in this particular situation. But sin in general, in our flesh, like Herod, we can tend to run. This man, or a man with less or no authority, might have retreated or run away from the word, this word of truth, But Herod, having authority, could just put truth in a place where he didn't have to hear it. It seems as though Herod viewed John as some kind of thumping heart. Now, why do I say it that way? There's a famous story by Edgar Allan Poe that would describe a man who is guilty of murder. He puts the man in the floorboards of his house And he is tortured by the sounds of what he would perceive as a thumping heart until it drives him to insanity. And it's not that the heart is literally beating, but it's his guilty conscience that is driving him mad. John is absolutely a form of a thumping heart in the life of Herod and his family. His response is to shut up truth so that he might be able to live with his choices And our first question today is, what is our response when the word of God unveils something that is lacking or rotten within us? Is our knee-jerk response to try to run from it and ignore it, or do we actually seek the face of God that we might be able to understand, surrender, and allow God to continue to sanctify us and make us holy? The latter is much more difficult because then I have to first admit that there is something wrong within me. That is not easy. But if we allow God to do his good and faithful work, it is always worth the pain. But Herod and his family are not done yet. So they've plotted together. They've stolen spouses from one another They've come into this household and they've heard from the righteous man in the community that what they've done is wrong and they've thrown him in jail. But remember, not Herod, but Herod's wife is particularly aggravated, particularly, sorry, tongue twister there, particularly aggravated with this man. And she has sought to kill him since the beginning. Now there's a difference still between Herod and Herodias in that Herod feared the people and he feared this man of God. And we'll get back to it in a minute, but it was something interesting about Herod is that he still enjoyed to hear the words of John for some reason. He was confused by them, but intrigued by them still. But Herodias wanted this man's life the second her sin was called out. And so then we get to the second point, shutting up righteousness. Back to Matthew 14, as we read 6 through 12, Why did they do that? Why and how did this happen? When Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, 
and she brought it to her mother. Then his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. So, we can point out the obvious in this text, and honestly, I'm going to skip over this in a minute. Well, you know what? I may not. What's happening now is Herod's stepdaughter, please remember the marital situation we're in to understand the ick that is happening right now, is in this marriage, now Herod's stepdaughter is dancing in a sensual manner in front of him and his friends so that she might be able to gain some kind of favor from in front of them. And unfortunately, she is in fact successful because it seems as though morality has completely dissipated from this group and those who are participating. And with this favor, the daughter goes to her mother and asks, what should I have? Or, sorry, Herodias tries to take advantage of it, and she does. And she says, give me the head of John the Baptist on this platter. Now, here... Herodias finds an opportunity to shut up once and for all the thumping heart that has been driving them mad. Now, I wanted to skip over this, but I think something, and I'm going to try to speak about this in a general way because I don't know if there's any little ears in here, is I think something we need to acknowledge culturally before we move on to this is I did not have this in my notes, is... Society is not far, and I would even argue has certainly arrived at a place to where this is an acceptable kind of behavior again. Why do I say that? Is we know that there is an obvious kind of sin, many of which partake in this this issue of pornography. But within the world of pornography, the issue of incestual relationships or relationships between stepmothers, brothers, fathers, whatever it is, has grown to being one of the most popular kind of content taken in. Now, that's troubling enough, but we already know pornography is prevalent within the church. Not just men struggle with this issue, but women certainly struggle with it as well. And while I don't think we need a statistician to say to point out the reality is that as pornography is an issue in the church, and this is one of the most prevalent forms of it, is that there may even be some in this room who, while they would never admit it, have partaken in this kind of activity on a screen. And so we read something like that, and the out loud reaction is, oh, that's gross. But I would say, brothers and sisters, this is between you and the Lord. Pornography is already an issue, but if you have reached here, to where you have subconsciously or even outright in action admitted that this kind of behavior is okay, can I encourage you, one, you're not alone. Others have struggled with this. And two, to seek the Lord and to seek those who would pray with you in repentance and bear with you to walk away from this kind of sin. We have to acknowledge, one, or stop pretending that this kind of sin does not exist among us. This is a total side note. I'm going down a rabbit trail for just a second, but please bear with me. This is a sin that is no stranger to the church. First Corinthians, Paul specifically tells them to deal with the brother who is sleeping with his father's wife. 
and that he attributes sin to the church for not dealing with the man who is in fact dealing with that. But in that, and this is where I would say most people are afraid because the church does not handle this well, is that what often people do is they hear of this kind of sin and they outcast somebody with no plan of redemption. But what I encourage you to do is if you see that and you're afraid of repentance and confession, go to 2 Corinthians and see that Paul specifically says for the repentant brother to embrace him and to partner with him and to continue to disciple and see the Lord sanctify him. And so I would say if you are struggling with this kind of sin and the enemy has made you terrified to come clean of it, know that it is the enemy that has made you terrified because the grace and mercy of God is far greater than the kind of sin that you are stuck in. You can be rescued, you can be redeemed, and it is also the church's responsibility, should you seek it, to walk with you through it, not to condemn you. Church, do we understand So I would say, as we continue, and I say we, as we continue to learn this kind of grace, should somebody come to you in confidence, confessing that they are in this place and they want help, it is wrong of you to shut them out. It is your biblical responsibility to seek the face of God together and to strive for holiness together, amen? We cannot reflect the character of the enemy that would be a condemner, but we must reflect the character of our God who is a redeemer, amen? Back to the point. All right, so here they have found themselves in this kind of sin, in this just wild circumstance, and here... Some of the things we should note is that the sin of the family and friends, because remember, Herod has other men who are in this place, continue to press the bounds of the kind of sin that they were so familiar with. Earthly relationships always include active spiritual efforts to push or pull you somewhere. What does that mean? Is that no matter what the relationship is, we have to be diligent to seek people who would push us towards heaven and not drag us towards hell. Because the influence of those around us, whether we want to admit it or not, are profound because they are so consistent. They are nagging whether we realize it or not. Peer pressure exists in every person's life, and Scripture would even say not all peer pressure is bad. Peer pressure that leads you to holiness is a good thing, but peer pressure that leads you to destruction should be dodged at every opportunity we possibly can. This lets us see the truth that friendship and family inevitably does move us, either good or bad, morally, ethically, and ultimately spiritually. Again, our relationships always include some form of active movement either towards ascension or descension. 1 Corinthians 15, 33 through 34 says, do not be deceived, bad company ruins good morals. 
Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning for some have no knowledge of God. And I say this to your shame, brothers and sisters, not everybody in our lives is beneficial for us. And can I note this as well? You're never going to get to a point where there isn't somebody who isn't beneficial or unbeneficial for you. But what's important is that those who we allow to be closest to us would be beneficial. Because if we're living a life where there is nobody who is unbeneficial towards us, it means that we are not living out the call to be evangelistic in any aspect of our life. If you have nobody in your life who is unbeneficial, who are you preaching to? Does that make sense? But for those who we choose to allow under our roofs to abide as family with us, are they leading us and encouraging and praying with us to strive to be more like Christ? Herod's pride and love for man's evaluation had, grow too, had grown too large compared to his interest for the things of God. Remember, he was intrigued by John, but that intrigue wouldn't be enough. And this wouldn't be the first and last time John would be intrigued, or not John, Herod. He would have another opportunity as he would meet Jesus before he sent Jesus ultimately to the cross in his inaction. And even then, his intrigue would not be enough. So here, <clears throat> all of this happens. These two, we have this Second response, you have the first being that Herod and the family would put John in jail, but the thumping heart would continue to drive them mad. And the first opportunity Herodias has is that she says, give me the man's head on a platter. And at this response, as Herod wanted to be evaluated well by men, consider this, brothers, is that he knew if he didn't live up to his promise, his friends would evaluate him in a less than stellar manner. What kind of friends do you have that would rather see you deliver the head of a man on a platter than stand up for what is right? This is a, this is a rather extreme example, but please bring it down to your situation. What kind of friends might we have if they would rather see us thrive in sin than to see us do what is right? You know, I don't think there's anybody in here who hasn't been trapped by their own word. By, we've all made promises that we couldn't live up to or that we've made promises that we've regretted. We get to a place, I'm like, man, I really wish I hadn't said I would do this thing. For every guy in here who's ever, had who's ever owned a pickup truck is, call me if you need anything. If you're gonna buy a truck, hold your tongue. Don't even let people know you own a truck. Our words can trap us, and Herod has been trapped by his words now. If your word is more important than God's righteousness even. That's a problematic place to be in. You know what? Man might look at you in a less than satisfactory way, but at the end of the day, you have to answer this question. Would you rather 
have the admiration of men or the admiration of the Father who saw you do what was right. Herod wanted the admiration of men who saw him live up to his word rather than what he knew was right. Notice, he still had fear within him just a few minutes ago. Why? Because he feared the people, but also because he knew John was a righteous man. That means he knew John didn't do anything wrong, but because of man's evaluation, he let it go. Our pride can certainly let us get somewhere quickly that we never thought that we would go. Now here, all of this has happened, but to this point, I love this. This family has thought that they have shut up this thumping heart. But as you're looking at the timeline, as you bounce between the Gospels, you have Herod who is confused about what is going on here. Look at Matthew chapter 14, 1. It says, At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to the servants, This is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That is why these miracles, miraculous powers are at work in him. And then it goes on to explain why he knows he's dead. Herod hears about all the miracles that are happening in the area. Now, had he actually listened to John, he would have known it was Jesus. But his first response is, well, hold on. Didn't I kill the only guy who could do this? Like, what are you, what are you talking about? How is this happening? His automatic thought is, He's alive again. Can you imagine how loud this thumping heart must have been for him to think John's alive again? Like, dude, you delivered his head to another room. How did, why is this your first response? He is absolutely riddled with guilt. But for us, for the believers, what I would say is a great encouragement here is that we know John the Baptist is not alive physically. We know he's alive spiritually, but For us, the encouraging part, the thumping heart was still thumping. The kingdom of God will prevail long beyond what our flesh is able to do. The kingdom of God cannot be shut up. The world, the enemy, set a plan to try to shut it up, and he thought he was successful only to be shocked at to hear God was still moving in a miraculous way. Guys, if there was ever an encouraging little random section in Scripture, this is it. To see that Herod was faced with the reality that you can try to shut up God's word, but God's word does not come back void, and it certainly will not fail. So here, Herod finds himself shocked that the miracles he thought he destroyed were still happening not realizing it was Jesus and the disciples, but still shocked because God is good. Amen? Then we get to the third and final response as we're working through the text today. We get to resting in the Father. Now, if you guys would, let's see. Let's look at 12 and 13. So if you're in Matthew 14, 12, would you say amen again? It says, and his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. And now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. <clears throat> if you look at Mark, <clears throat> we're not, we don't have to flip there, but for your note taking, I believe it's on the screen as well. Mark six thirty through 31, everybody would have heard this news. 
And it would have been on the tail end of a great bit or a great amount of ministry. And Jesus would encourage the group to go to a desolate place as well so that they could recuperate, as it says, that they were so busy that they had no leisure to even eat. Everybody's running on E at this point, and they've just received this news. Now, as we look at Scripture, what I would note and encourage all of us to consider is that Jesus' actions are just as valuable as his words. And this is something that is very easy to just quickly glance over, but I believe that is something as society, especially in American society, we tend to struggle with, is that rest and retreat is a good thing. And this is a lesson I regularly struggle with in its application. I'm just being really honest with you. I am terrible at this. My leadership team will tell you I'm terrible at this. My family will tell you I'm terrible at this. Please pray for me as I work through this. I don't like to stop. I have a, I think my gas gauge is broken when I'm hitting E. You know that little stick that exists there that stops the thing going? I broke that thing off forever ago. It just continues to go. But for me, and I'm, I'm communicating this to you as somebody who struggles with this, is I also have to admit that the amount I struggle with it does beg the question as to whether I believe this or not. And so for you, what I would say is if you struggle with the concept of rest and retreat so much that you never do it, but you say you know rest is good, your actions would say that, as I am to myself often, a liar. If you really believed that rest was good and refreshment was good, and I would even include in this text, because of the news that they have just received, that mourning is good, then we would do it. A person can only say they believe something so long before their actions reveal them to be untruthful. And in this context of rest, retreat, and mourning, sin is a great deceiver. When we hit E, and I would say especially as an American people, we press harder. We run farther. We work longer. There's nothing more sad and heartbreaking than seeing a mother who can't stop working at their own child's funeral. They won't allow themselves to mourn. Now, <clears throat> that's one example of a great many. But do we really believe that there's rest to be had when we're weary? And do we really believe that there's rest to be had when we're heartbroken? Jesus receives this news. And depending on which context you're looking at it, again, all of these apply. He's just received this news that in the physical reality, he's just lost a family member and a, and a, and a friend, as well as the disciples. You know, as, as we read through the Gospels, I think a lot of times we like to read it <clears throat> very as, as a matter of fact. But all of these men have been ministering together for a long time. And for anybody who's ever done ministry with people, and, and I would go as far to say, when you're doing ministry the right way with people is... They're breaking bread 
together. They're not just breaking bread. They're sharing intimate realities with one another. I'm sure many of you have heard me say this, is those who are closely knit together even begin to laugh the same way. These men have begun to laugh the same way. They understand one another. They enjoy one another's company. It's a kind of relationship that no matter how long you've been apart, when you come back together, it's like you never skipped a beat. There's one, <clears throat> one friendship in particular I can think of. My wife and Erica, whenever they're joking around, they literally have the same laugh sometimes. And it's both endearing and creepy. <laughs> but the depth of the relationship is invaluable. And these men have just received news that for a, a moment, they'll receive it again in heaven, but for a moment, that relationship is no longer there. And we see Jesus, not the men, please note this, we see Jesus suggest the retreat. Now, for many of us, when we hear this word retreat, especially for the men in the room or anybody who is military affiliated, we see the word retreat and we say, well, that doesn't exist within me because that's the coward's way out. That means I've, I have to admit defeat. Okay, well, that's certainly one way to look at it, but that's not how we're gonna look at it today. It can also mean a period of group, a period that a group takes to withdraw and to rest in prayer and meditation and study and to seek for the believer instruction from the Father. To receive rest and replenishment from him. Jesus provides us the insight in this one verse that rest, rehabilitation, and mourning are a great necessity for forward movement. He and all these men are physically done. What quality of ministry would have happened should they not have taken this moment of retreat? And I think for many of us, when we struggle with this and the concept of, of work or ministry, you're gonna press on and you're gonna think, well, if I don't do it, it's just not gonna get done. If I don't show up, nothing's gonna happen. Okay, well, let's say you get up and you go do it. And I'm going to be a little blunt here. It's going to get done, but it's not going to be done anywhere near as well as it should have been done because your eyes are crossed. Your eyelids are drooping. You're exhausted. The quality of work and the quality of ministry has been greatly diminished. Patience has dissipated. Patience went out a long time ago. And I'll even include parenthood in this. And I heard, actually, I heard this the other day. Men, Fathers in the room, your wife needs your assistance to get the rest she needs to be a good mother. If you see that she is exhausted, it is not her responsibility to figure it out. It is your responsibility to aid and provide for her in that season. Here, we avoid rest, rehabilitation, and mourning so much. I remember <clears throat> a few years ago, just speaking in terms of culture and society, when my mom passed away, I didn't know my boss was lying to me, but <clears throat> apparently 
you're allowed to grieve for an extended period of time in the place that I had to work, but my boss told me I had two days before I had to come back. Two days isn't enough to grieve anything. I wasn't ready. I just thought I had to. But because I'm so used to culture and I'm so used to the expectation, I didn't question it for a moment. And I would say most of us in here are very familiar with the societal pressure that we're expected to just buck up and move on. To just pretend like nothing's wrong. Nobody really wants to hear that nothing's wrong. How many of you have thought that? Nobody wants to hear about my problems. Well, you know what? If nobody else wants to hear about your problems, the Lord does. Your Father does. He wants the opportunity to express what it is to be Abba Father to you. Reflection, rest, and mourning is isn't weakness, it is the fool who considers it to be one. Our spiritual backs aren't designed to bear burdens forever. And Christians, we are just as bad about this as anybody else. Brothers, scripture does call us to confess and repent to one another. Your spiritual back is not designed for you to bear the burden that is on you. And your brother's only there to be an aid, but Jesus can make your yoke light. Moms, the same goes for you. Professionals in here, whatever your workplace is, Jesus created us to rest and abide in him, not to find sufficiency in our own strength. And I'm sure if we're all very honest with ourselves, we find that our spiritual back is not very sufficient. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Have you ever noticed in that text that <clears throat> Jesus actually calls us to put on a different burden entirely, a different yoke entirely? He doesn't say, let me fit this yoke that you have so well designed in your own mind. He says, come to me and bear with me this one that is very light that I have made well so that I can bear with you in it. A lot of times we get this backwards. Even, even in, a, in a good attempt, we, we assume that Jesus is supposed to fit our mold of life. But what scripture calls us to do is to be humble and to fit his mold and design for life. To understand what it is to be under his yoke. To walk in his love. To walk in his understanding. And I would even, we can take all of these different points is to really say, it doesn't matter what you or the others think, it matters what the Lord thinks. Jesus made this decision. Remember, Jesus was fully man. Jesus made this decision being empty. And I would even say, there's another side to this. There are some of us who are very quick to rest. 
There are some of us who are very quick to rehabilitation. Our cup, we have a very shallow cup that runs never empty because we just constantly fill it up. It's like we have a water, we have a water fountain in our house that I just want to sit by this thing all the time. But can I challenge you as well to say that refreshment isn't nearly as appreciated if we're always full? Is <clears throat> you're never tired because you're never being used by God. You never need the Lord's refreshment because you have lukewarm liquid in your cup. The water, the word of God, this living water is refreshing. And I would ask is have you been, have you allowed yourself to step into a place where you've been used by God enough that he would refresh you with his refreshing water? So our closing question for today as we've just worked through these first 13 verses and we consider these responses is what are our responses to the workings of the kingdom of God? And especially as we're about to take communion, we must ask, do we run when we hear the truth that is paired with our Father's will? And invite the worship team up now as we bring this to a close. Do we run or, or do we try to silence its voice? There are many of us who can understand and relate to Herod that know very well what our sin is and we have tried to bury it, hide it, and shut it up, but that thumping is relentless. Then can I say, as Herod found out, no matter what you do to try to shut it up, his word will never fail and that thumping will never stop. Or do we rest in the provision that exists in the presence of the Father? I hope we could all say it is three, but if it is not, as we get ready to take communion together, let's humble ourselves before the Lord and ask him to teach us to respond in the third manner. That we wouldn't try to reside in our own fleshly understanding, but we would just for a moment, even in this time of worship, retreat to the Lord's presence so we could be refreshed today. I've grown to know a lot of you here in this room, and I can look around and I see that a lot of you are tired. I may not know why today, why you're tired. But it seems like a good time and the Lord knew that it would come to today that we would be refreshed. Even the leadership who's in here, if there's any of the leadership who I asked to be up here for prayer but you need to be prayed for, please, please holler at me so we can pray together. But church, this is for all of us. Jesus led the disciples to a place of rest because it is necessary. And have you taken any time recently to follow Christ to the place of rest? And maybe there's some of you in here who, who have no idea, like you didn't even know that there was a place of rest to be had because you've never walked with him. Come and seek us for prayer. We would love to pray over you because the only place that that rest can be found is in Christ. And I would encourage you to surrender your life to him to find that he is so much more sufficient than anything else we've ever found in this world. Seek the face of God and find redemption. Find replenishment. Find life everlasting.
So with that, we're not going to stand and pray. We're going to take communion together. I've already given you guys a word of caution that we find in Scripture about it. But now as as a worship team goes to this final song, take the moment to reflect and bring yourselves to the foot of the cross in prayer. The communion elements will be handed out, and then I will lead us in communion together. But let's pray and worship. If you need prayer, our pastors and leaders will be up front for you who need prayer. And you guys are welcome to come up now. And let's present ourselves before the Lord. And so, Father, we come before you this this morning, Lord, this blessed morning, Father, as we have breath in our lungs, Father, as long as we have an opportunity to hear of your grace and mercy and faithfulness, Lord, God, we are blessed. Father, I pray that now as we step into this moment, Father, of rest and refreshment in prayer and in worship, that God, you would speak to us. That, Lord, you would remind us as your word says that, Father, you haven't inclined us to be a people of a a repentant character so that we would be condemned. But, Father, you've called us to be a people of repentant and humble character that we would be restored and made holy. Father, fill us full of faith to know that we are going to be taken care of with the perfect love of the perfect Father. speak to us now. Ask this in your son's precious and holy name.